Let's learn, let's learn. We are in Parshas Ki Tavo, which we are going to be starting on page 1072. 1072, the beginning of the 27th chapter, Perak Chaf Zayin in Parshas Ki Tavo. Um, we are towards the end. Now, we really began learning together at the very end of Sefer Dvarim, so we haven't had the experience of going through the entire Torah, Parsha by Parsha. We didn't even have the chance of going through the last book, Sefer Dvarim, together, Parsha by Parsha. So it's sort of, we're just jumping in in the middle. So I want to address a specific topic that we can try to handle just as an isolated event. Where we are historically, Moshe is at the end of his life. We only have three or four more parshios left until the end of Chomish, which means literally it's the last few weeks of Moshe's life. The Jews are standing at the cusp of the border, at the Jordan River, ready to cross over, and it is already known that Moshe will not be joining them. That has already been addressed earlier in Sefer Dvarim. So it's the last few poignant weeks of Moshe's life, the last few messages that he has to give over to the Jewish people. We only have one or two more mitzvahs really to learn by the time this parsha is done. We're pretty much finished with all that Moshe has to teach us. Just a few more messages. What we're going to learn today is a small section of about nine psukim in which Moshe tells the Jewish people the first thing they need to do when they enter into the land, which is of course going to be without him. And we're going to see it inside. We're going to study about a series of large stones or rocks that they're going to take with them. and They're going to inscribe the words of the Torah on it. And we'll take a look at many of the beautiful lessons that Moshe has to teach us from this. Let's take a look at it um, all together. So we're beginning of uh, Perich Zion, page 1072. For those who'd like to follow inside. Vayitzav Moshe. Here we go. Vayitzav Moshe. V'zikne Yisrael es ha'am lemor. And Moshe, together with the Zikne Yisrael, the elders of the Jewish people, commanded the nation, saying as follows. And what's this command that Moshe now gives together with the Zikne Yisrael? Shamor es kola mitzvah asher anochi mitzvah hayom. Shamor, observe, kola mitzvah, the entire mitzvah that I have commanded you today. Okay, number of points on this question. What jumps out at you that's of note in such a pasuk? I'll read it again, or we'll just say it almost, almost in English. Moshe and the Zikne Yisrael commanded the nation, observe the entire mitzvah that I have commanded you today. What jumps out at you? Okay, mitzvah. What about mitzvah? Your obligations. Your obligations. Well, what's odd about the language of mitzvah? Is that a singular or a plural word? Singular. What should it have been? Mitzvos. Like what's, why is Moshe saying this as a singular? Very interesting. What else is of note in this particular puzzle that you see almost nowhere else in all of Chumash? Who's commanding the people? No. Moshe. Moshe. Moshe, together with... What, now again, we haven't, we've only started, we're, we're at the end of the book, but almost every other parsha in all of Chumash, who is the commander talking to the people? Hashem, through Moshe, and sometimes... Moshe and Aharon. That you will often see. Vayidaber Hashem el Moshe. V'el Aharon. Moshe and Aaron often speak together. Sometimes it's just Moshe. But to have Moshe and the Zikne Yisrael is of note that this first command that we're about to read should be that combination of Moshe together with the Zikne Yisrael and the command of keep this singular mitzvah. So the Ramban notes, what are the Zikne Yisrael doing there? Why do we have the elders? So the Ramban says, well, on a very simple level, what we've already introduced, what's happening as Moshe gives them their instructions? What's he talking about? What they're going to do when they cross over. And who's not there with them? 
Moshe. So he wants the continuity. As I give you this command of the first thing that you're going to do, I already want the Ziknei Yisrael. These are the elders. These are the leaders. These are the people who are going to be, in the Ramban's language, the Enei Ha'eda, the eyes of the people who are going to guide them and teach them, who are with them for the last 40 years. So Moshe says, I need you to be here with me when I give them this command so that as we transition into the next period of Jewish history, and I'm not here, but they are, you've already seen me working together with them as we, as we work through, as we enter into, uh, into the land. Moshe uses the language, even though he's speaking together with his Zikanei Yisrael, when he says, keep the mitzvah that you've been commanded, who does he say commanded them in it? Look back at the Pasuk, very interesting. Shamor is kol mitzvah sher anochi. What does that mean? That I command. So, so he takes the elders... And he says, all of us, come, we need to come together. And he doesn't say, observe the mitzvahs that we commanded you. He says, observe the mitzvahs that... So he's combining two things, the Ramban points out. On the one hand, I need there to be the continuity of leadership. I need there to be that you see these elders and you see them in that role of leadership because I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not even going to be here for another couple of weeks. But when I command you, I want you to have a distinction when the leaders tell you to do something is different than when I told you to do something. When I told you to do something, I was getting it directly from Hashem, and this is a mitzvah in the Torah. As we now shift into the next generation, when the rabbis, when the leaders, when the elders guide you, it's important to listen to them, but it's no longer on the level of what it was when I told you, when I told you to do something, it's coming directly from Hashem. This is a mitzvah in the Torah for all of eternity. When the leaders tell you to do something, there's a Canaan. We have to listen to our leadership, but it's not on the same level. So Moshe combines these two ideas by A, bringing them with him, but then saying, singularly, listen to the mitzvah that I commanded you. And he says it in a singular, the mitzvah, singular. Rav Hirsch, Rav Shimshin Rafal Hirsch, who I hope will quote often, it's a beautiful commentary. The leader of the German community passed away in the late 1800s. Um, writes, the reason why Moshe put it in the singular is because now that he's pretty much done with all of Torah, he did, we have one or two more mitzvahs that we're going to cover, that a Jew should always see the entirety of Torah as a singular entity. There are many components of it. We could break it down into psukim. We could break it down into parshas. We could break it down into five different books, different svarim. But at its core... At its core, Torah is from Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and the singular God who gave us the Torah, gave us the Torah that is really, it's, it's one. And we, we divide it because we can't handle it that way. This is similar to an idea that we're going to talk about, Mirz Hashem, another time at great length, on when the Aseris Adibros were given to the Jewish people, Rashi makes a comment from the sages um, based on the Pasuk that Hashem spoke as Kol HaDevarim HaElo, all of these things, Rashi says, all of Torah was said in one utterance. In the same way we're familiar from L'chadodi. Shamor v'zachar v'dibur echad. Shamor and zachar, the two aspects of Shabbos were said together. In the same moment that Hashem said zachar, He also said shamor, to keep and re- to do the positive mitzvahs of Shabbos and refrain from the prohibitions of Shabbos. He said it together. But Rashi says, the sages say, really, it's not just Shomer and Zachar, really all of Torah was said in one utterance. And then he had to go over it one at a time because we couldn't understand it. What's the idea behind that? The same idea that it really at its core, all of Torah is a unified, singular entity. And refer, we'll speak about that another time at length. But uh, Rav Hirsch sees that in this language when Moshe says, singularly, Shomer, Esha, 
mitzvah hazos. Okay, we've got a lot to do. Let's go on. Okay, so what's this big mitzvah that Moshe is now telling us to make sure that we have to be careful with? It'll be on the day that you pass this Yardin, which of course Moshe is not going with him. To the land that Hashem has given you. You will erect for yourself, you will literally stand up large stones. Visadita osam basid, and you will coat them with plaster. So you're going to get these large stones, and you're going to put plaster on them. And then what are we going to do with these large stones with the plaster? You're going to write all the words of the Torah when you cross over. On these large stones that you put plaster on, you're going to write the entirety of Torah on them. Why? In order that you shall enter into this land that Hashem has given you, Eretz Zavas Chalavudvash, flowing with milk and honey, Kasher Diber Hashem Elokai Vasachalach, like Hashem has spoken to you. Somehow this is like contingent. Your ability to enter into the land. But what do you need to do to enter in when you go in, take these large stones, put plaster on them, and then you will write the entirety of the Torah. What would you say? The language is kol What did they actually write on these stones? What does it sound like they wrote? So it's an interesting what they wrote. So the Ramban quotes from the Ibn Ezra that they only wrote the basics of the mitzvot. They didn't write the entire chumash. They wrote a shorthand of the mitzvot that a Jew has to observe on these stones. But the Ramban rejects that. He says, that's not what the language of the Pusik implies. The language of the Pusik doesn't imply only the Aseris Adibros. It doesn't imply only mitzvot. What does it imply? What do they write? Do any of you have artwork? They make artwork these days. You know, where they make the, the drawings out of words from, like, you know, Megillus Rus or maybe from the Chumash, right? I don't know what they had in those days on stones and plasters and what kind of tools they had, but the Ramban says they wrote out the entirety of Torah. Now, let me finish one thought. So the Ramban says, so therefore either they needed tremendous stone, I mean, that's a large stone, or it was Bederich Nes. It was a miracle that they were able to somehow get onto these, these stones uh, enough space to be able to do so. That idea touches, the Ramban mentions this a couple of different places in Chumash, which Hashem will get to over the years, that even if it's a miracle, you still need to have a large stone. Whenever Hashem does miracles, He always does miracles. The Ramban says this is a rule, you'll find it always. <coughs> miracles are done in as much in a natural way as possible. So that it looks as, na- even though it's a miracle, but it always looks as natural as possible. There are two very, very famous examples. One of the greatest miracles in all of Jewish history when the Jews left Mitzrayim, of course, would be splitting of the sea. Greatest of miracles. We re- recall it. I'm going to get to your question in a second. All the time. It's of note that when the Torah describes this great miracle, it says very openly that a great wind blew the entire night. And then the sea split. Now, if I were doing a miracle and I was going to split the sea, I would do it like they did in the movie. <laughs> Clear day, sky is beautiful, and then all of a sudden, bam, everything splits. That's a miracle, right? That's not what the Torah describes. 
Torah describes this fierce wind, a stormy night, the whole night, wind is blowing. And then, why, why would you even, if you wanted to do a miracle and split the sea, like, why not go all out? But no, that's not how it happens. It happens through some form of a natural event, and yet we celebrate it as one of the greatest miracles in all, because it was, even though it happened. The other classic example that you're all familiar with, when, when, the, when Hashem sends a mabel, the flood, to destroy the world, how does he save all the animals? With a teva. Noah is told to build a teva. What kind of boat did Noah build? A big one or a small one? Medium. So, it's a good answer. Now, from the perspective of what Noah was told to build, it was an enormous boat. It took him how long to build the boat, according to the sages? More. 120 years, Rashi quotes. It took Noah 120 years to build this enormous teva. As enormous as it was, and we have the dimensions. There's a place in Turkey now where they think they found it. Where is it exactly? Right? Where they think they found... Uh, it's an enormous structure, for those, especially for those days. But could it, could it possibly hold all of the animals of the world? It's, it's not even close. The Ramban says, of course it was a miracle that the animals fit in. So the Ramban asks, once you're going to have a miracle to fit the animals in, what do you need to build such a big boat for? Build a smaller boat. Why do I have to spend so much? It's going to be a miracle anyway. It's going to be a miracle like this. It's going to be a miracle like that. The Ramban says the same idea. If he would have built just your average motorboat, or the kind of yacht that people have, you know, like, not a super yacht, just a regular one. As the animals are walking on, you're like, this is impossible. That's crazy. But if I build an ocean liner, and you watched for even an hour, I mean, there's nothing unusual about that. It's only if you watched all day. At some point, you would say to yourself, wait a minute. How, how are they fitting? But that's only because you spent enough time. It didn't look crazy. It's only crazy if you stop and pay attention. But if you would have built a smaller boat, then it would have looked crazy. So the miracle that he did fit into, you only notice it if you're paying attention. But if you can miss it, under that's how Hashem does miracles in our lives until today, that if you're not paying attention, it would look like just natural events. But if you're paying attention, you'll see it. So Rabbi makes that comment here as well. They took enormous stones. It was going to be a miracle anyway. So just take a smaller stone once it's going to be a miracle. No. It's going to be a miracle, but it's going to be a massive stone. Yes? I think I answered my question. Excellent. Well, okay. Beautiful. The question was, have they got the stones across the sea? We're not there yet. We're actually going to get there. We're actually going to get there. Now, uh, we'll do that right now, actually. Uh, well, one more pasuk. We'll do one more pasuk. So it says, uh, okay, so, so uh, first of all, one other question. What would you say was the order in terms of the taking of the stone, the plaster, and the writing it? What, from the pasuk that we read, the previous pasuk, pasuk Gimel, Dalit, Bays and Gimel, how did it work? What was the logistics of what they did based on the pasuk? If you read, read pasuk, the end of pasuk Bays, the end of pasuk uh, says, you'll take you'll take these large stones and you'll put plaster on it. And then you'll write on it all of the stuff. What was the order? Plaster. So what did they actually write on? On the plaster. That's what it sounds like, yeah? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Pasuk Dalit. And when you pass over, when you cross over the Yarden, you will set up these stones that I have today commanded you on Har Eval, and then you will plaster them. That's interesting. What? 
What does that sound like? That second pasuk we just read. You're going to take these stones, you're going to put them on Harevol, and then you'll put plaster on them. When did the writing happen? What would it sound like if you only had this pasuk? When would you... So I would assume it would have been before, because when you get to your final destination, then you're going to put the plaster on. We'll have to get back to this idea. Now, we're going to get back to this. For the whole plaster issue is like, why does there so much talk about the plaster? Why does the Torah keep talking about plaster? Like, why is it relevant? But it's, it seems to be very relevant. Now, the Chumash here does not tell us all the details, but the Navi in Sefer Yehoshua, the first book of Navi, gives us a little bit more detail as to what happened. What happened was, when the Kohanim carrying the Aron crossed into the Yardin for the first time, as they began to cross, the Yardin split, the Jordan River split, similar to the way the Jews left Mitzrayim, like we mentioned a few moments ago. When the Kohanim carrying the Aron entered into the Yardin and the water split, all of the people passed through on the dry land. At that point, one person from each Shevet was appointed to take a large stone from the Jordan River. They carried it across. After they carried it across, the Kohanim exited last, and then the water returned to its place. They took those stones that each, there were 12, the Torah doesn't tell us how many, by the way. The Torah just said, take large stones. The Navi told us they were 12, one from each Shevet, and they were all then taken to, as the Torah says, Har Eval. Har Eval, you're familiar, the two famous mountains, Hagrizim and Har Eval, is where the Jews gathered for the brachos and the klalos, the blessings and the curses, for when they first came into the land of Israel. They took those stones there. They brought a bunch of offerings, as we'll read about in a moment. And then they took the stones to a third place, to uh, 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 Gilgal. And that was where they first set up the Mishkan, and that's where the stones ended up. So they went from the riverbed, each person, one person from per tribe took them. They went to Har Eval, as the Pasuk here says. And then they took it to a place called Gilgal. Rav Hirsch comments, well, why did they do all of this? Rav Hirsch says, because each tribe had their stone, which had either, it's unclear whether or not each one had the whole Torah in, or altogether they had all of Torah written on it. We're going to see there were some other things written on it. We'll get to that in a moment. And Rav Hirsch says, this became... The, the place that every tribe would be able to go to and say, my Zayda took from this stone. In the same way as now, you know, when you have a graduation trip, eighth grade, everybody goes where, Washington, D.C., where everybody goes. There's certain, right, there's certain places, you know, you do the same trip. Why? Because it's important. When a kid graduates, a certain, right, it's important that you go to the places that matter and you learn a little bit about history and you learn a little bit about the people that made a difference. It's the classic uh, trip. So it first says, when the Jews would enter into the land of Israel, you know where they would all go? They would go to this place called Gilgal, Galgel, and they would see the stones, and they would say, that's the one from my tribe. This is the one that we entered in. This is what my tribe took from the Yardin and set up and wrote all of Torah on it, and there would be this continuity from generation to generation. When we entered into the land for the first time, we wrote out all of Torah and we were able to see. And that was the, the graduation trip. You would go to these places and you would visit and you would see. And that would be how we would uh, uh, continue everything. Okay, let's continue. We've got some more to do. When you get to Har Eval and you set up these stones, you will build a Mizbeach to Hashem. Mizbach Avanim will be a Mizbeach, an altar of stone. Lo Sanif Alehem Barzel. You may not use any iron implement in creating this Mizbeach, which is very similar to some other place. Anyone familiar? 
The Beis HaMikdash itself, when you would build the Beis HaMikdash, the, the altar, the Mizbeach, and the Beis HaMikdash, you also were not allowed to use any implement of iron or metal in building it. And that was, as the Torah says, as Rashi explains, because since iron is a material that generally shortens one's life, it's used for weapons and situations that are harmful. So it's inappropriate that a metal or a material that's used to shorten one's life should be used to build that which extends or expands one's life in the relationship between us and Hashem in the, in the Beis HaMikdash and the Mizbech. And therefore, one is not allowed to use any iron implement in the Beis HaMikdash. And Moshe here says, when you build the Mizbech on Har Eval, there too, you're not allowed to have any type of iron implement when you build that um, is back. The Gemara talks about, so how do they hew the stones? How do you do that without an, a metal implement? There's a special worm that would secrete um, whatever it would secrete and that would allow them to break the stones open. It was a whole to do how to be able to create such a mizbeach uh, without using any uh, iron implement. Pasuk Vav, Avanim Shleimos Tivnes Mizbach Hashem Elokecha You'll build complete stones. You'll build a mizbeach Alisa Sham Alav Olos you will bring a carbon ola, which is an offering that was completely burnt. And together with that, you will also bring a carbon shlamim. A carbon shlamim is very different than a carbon ola, because a carbon ola, which is completely burnt, nobody eats from. But a carbon shlamim, the Jews who bring the carbon are allowed to eat from. And that's what the Torah says. You'll bring a carbon, and you'll eat there. And you will rejoice over Hashem who has brought you into this land. Remember what Moshe is speaking about. He's like, I'm not going with you, but you're going to go in. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to take these stones, you're going to go to Har Eval, you're going to plaster them over, we're going to see in a second, and you're going to write out all of this Torah, and you're going to, you're going to celebrate. You're going to bring it, build them as Beach. You're going to build it in the way that we would build it, their actual base on Mikdash. No iron as you build the stones. You're going to bring a carbon Ola, you're going to bring a carbon Shlomim, you're going to eat and you're going to rejoice. If anyone has been recently, not so recently, it's been a long time already, in Eretz Yisrael, right outside Shechem, which is not the uh, safest place to go, you need to have a tour guide that takes you there, they, the scholars believe they have located these two mountains of Har Eval and Hagrizim, and you can go up to those mountains right now, you're literally overlooking the, the Arab city of Shechem, um, and the two mountains are right side by side, and there are two amazing things about these uh, mountains. One, number one, the reason why they believe that these are the old ancient mountains of Hargrizim and Hareva, one is that they found on one of the mountains a number of, they found what they think would be the Mizbech, the stone Mizbech that the Jews were commanded to build. And they also believe they found lots of little shards, the types of, eye, of um, pottery shards what, that a Jew would use in the times of the Beis HaMikdash when they would roast the meat of a carbon. So the meat of a carbon is, of course, sanctified meat. And therefore, just like when we have our pots, if you cook meat in the pot, it becomes fleshics. If you cook dairy in a pot, it becomes milchics because the pot absorbs, so to speak, from whatever it is that you're cooking in it. So if you cooked kudshim, if you cooked sanctified meat from a carbon, that doesn't just become fleshics. It becomes prohibited to use for anything else. So they would use pottery for almost all their dishes and everything. They would roast the meat, and then they would eat off pottery because... Pottery was generally very cheap and disposable, and then they, when they would finish eating, they would break it because you couldn't use it. As soon as the day would finish, the plate couldn't be reused because it had become a, not just a meat plate, but a kudshim, a carbon plate. So whenever there was, they found the same thing in, um, uh, in Shiloh 
where they believe they found the, the original Mizbech. You can go there today. They built it up. It's a beautiful site to go visit and to daven, or Chana daven for a child. They also, in all the surrounding hills, found all of these shards that were evidence of the Jews in the times of the Mishkan, when they would eat sanctified meat, they would always use these types of pottery because then they could just break it afterwards and it didn't cost you anything. It was like using a paper plate. Um, anyway, so they think they found Hagrizim and Harevol. The other reason what's amazing about these two mountains, let me just finish this thought, is when you go up to visit, if you, if you go there and you're side by side these two mountains, there's an amazing thing that you could hear on the streets below. It's an Arab street. You could see the buses. You could almost hear individual voices. The mountains are situated next to each other in such a way that the echo from the ground level, you're up on top of this mountain in Eretz Yisrael, but the echo from down below is crystal clear. The cars honking, people yelling. It's amazing. And when you think about it, the Torah says, we're not, it's not even a world learning of the brachos. Remember the, the brachos and the clothes were said, and the, the Kohanim would be on the ground, and they would say, Arur Ha'ish, cursed be the person, Baruch And the people would say, Amen. Like, How does everybody hear? How could you hear? They didn't have, you know, microphones. How did they set it up? These two mountains, you can hear crystal clear. It's like an amazing thing. So they think those are the two mountains. In any case, Har Eval is where they would say the blessings. This is where they set up the Mizbech. It's where they brought Karbanos. It's where they ate. Yeah. They would just throw, I don't know if they would bury them. I mean, now it's already thousands of years. Thousands, I don't know exactly what was done originally, but um, they, would, that, they would become, once they became unusable, then they lost its sanctity because it, it was an unusable dish again. Last Pasuk. Last Pasuk. V'chasavta al ho'avanim as kol divraya Torah hazos. You will write on these stones the entirety of Torah be'er he'tev. A very clear... Um, a very clear understanding. How does well clarified the art scroll translates it as? You're going to write the entire. Well, what does that mean? You're going to write the. To- if I just need to write it word for word, so then I write it word for word. What does it mean that I need to inscribe the Torah with a be'er hetev with a good clarification? Either I wrote it or I didn't write it. What, what did you write it with? So Rashi quotes from the sages. When you see Be'er Hetev, it means they wrote it Bishivim Lashon. They wrote it with... So not just one copy on this big stone. They wrote out the Torah, and then they translated it into... 70 languages. You think Art School was the first one to write his comments in English? No, well, no, it was not the first. They already had all... Set. Now, 70 language represents a couple of very important points. So number one, what would you say? What's the significance of writing out the Torah in 70 languages? To reach many people. Okay, so number one, Jews or non-Jews? So let's, let's deal with both. On the one hand, on the one hand, we see this idea in a couple of different contexts in Chumash that it was written, this, we see this the second time as the Jews were about to enter into the land of Israel, something about all 70 languages. Now, 70 languages represents all the nations of the world at that time. Whenever we see the, na- the, the number 70, that's, it's representative of the whole world in the, the known languages that they had. So on the one hand, so two different things that this would represent. On the one hand, it would represent, as you're about to enter into the land of Israel, you're about to take hold of this land, and you need to observe all of the Torah. But you know what? We're not going to be here forever. There are going to be two major exiles that are going to take place throughout Jewish history. And the Jews are going to be scattered throughout the four corners of the world. So right, the first thing that we do as we enter in is we write it in every language possible. To say... Wherever in the world you may end up, whatever language you will be learning Torah in, whether it be Yiddish or French or English or anything else, let there never be a Jew who can say, I couldn't access Torah. 
I didn't know. I didn't have. I didn't have the ability. So the first thing they did is they wrote it on all 70 languages. Now there's another meaning here, which we'll see in a moment, but it, not just does it represent that now every Jew had access to it, but now who else has access to it? Everybody also does. It's now something that's accessible. To, this is not true about the oral law, Torah Shabbal Peh. We do not find any idea in which it's our requirement or obligation to make it accessible to anybody. That's our direct connection with Hashem. It's our bris, our covenant, and it's unique to us. But the written word, the Torah Shabbal the Chumash, was translated into 70 languages right when the first Jews came into the land of Israel put there on a stone. Which leads us to our final point. This idea of the plaster is really a little bit perplexing. How, how exactly, what's the deal with the plaster? The Torah highlights it not just once but twice that you're going to take these stones, you're going to plaster them, you're going to write on it. One, one Pusik seems to imply first they put the plaster and then they wrote on it. The second Pusik seems to imply after they wrote on it, they put the plaster on it. What's the deal with it? So the Gemara Masach Sota has a fascinating dispute, a machlokas between Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon, how to read these psukim. Rabbi Huda says, you know how they did it? First they wrote it, and then they put the plaster over it. And he bases himself on the second pasuk. That's what it sounds like. The second pasuk is you'll get to Har Eval, and then after you get there, then you'll put the plaster on. Rabbi Shimon says to him the obvious question, which I'm sure you're all thinking, which is... What in the world is the point of going through this miraculous event of engraving, not just in Hebrew. You're going to engrave 70 languages, as the sages see, Chazal see 70 languages, and then you're going to put plaster on it. You can't read it. What's the point of that? Therefore, Rabbi Shimon says, that's not what they did. They put the plaster on first, and then they engraved the plaster. Why would you do that? So it seems to be, what would be the most logical reason why you would put plaster on and then engrave it? Somehow it was a better form of writing. You know, rocks aren't perfectly smooth. That's a pretty hard thing to do. So Rabbi Shimon sees that in a very logical way. I want you to take these big stones. I want to have a place for all the kids to come and visit. I want everybody to come and say, here are the stones that they took from the Jordan River when they crossed over. We wrote out Torah. It's for every generation. So what's the easiest way to do so in a way that will be legible and able to be maintained for all. So put the plaster on, and then you'll inscribe into the plaster. That's what Rabbi Shimon says. That's for sure what the Torah meant. So, so the Gemara turns back to Rabbi Huda and says, I don't know, that seems pretty logical. First you put the plaster, and then you write it. Rabbi Huda, what were you thinking that you think that the way to read the psukim is that they were going to pl- engrave it first and then put plaster on? What, who's that accessible to? Why would they do that? So Behuda says a fascinating thing. He says, Bina Yisair, there's an extra level of understanding that was necessary to be able to pick up the plaster and read what was underneath. You needed a special level of understanding to be able to do so. What's the significance of that? This is the most beautiful lesson. And with this, we will conclude. You know, we live in an era of information. It's an amazing era that we all live in because in in my own lifetime, in my own lifetime, I'm not even as experienced as most of you in here. In my lifetime, we went from those old rotary phones, you know, we went to where we hold in our hands 
There is nothing, nothing in the world that I can't access right now. Literally nothing. Literally from building a nuclear bomb to figuring out how to get from here to the nearest target. There is not a piece of information, nothing that I can't access holding in my hand, which is something unfathomable 15 years ago. I'm not, I'm not going back 150 years ago. 15 years ago, who would have imagined something like this? And now we take it for granted. We're like, oh, it's so slow. Why isn't it good at what I wanted to do? Does this make me any smarter? No. It's a smartphone. But the fact that I can access anything doesn't actually make me any better unless I access it. Unless I learn it. Sometimes I learn less things because I feel like I don't have to know it. I can just look it up again. And so I don't even pay attention. I grew up, I'm sure you remember that. I grew up, I could rattle off the phone numbers of all of my friends from elementary school, right? And for me, it's going back 30 years already. I know all of them by heart. I don't even know my kids' phone numbers. <laughs> right? Because you plug in their name. I have no idea. So there's a lot of information like that that we don't even bother to learn because why should I bother? I, whatever I need, I have it right here. So having access to information is not actually going to solve any problems unless you want to access the information. And then you spend the time accessing it, learning it, memorizing it. But access alone isn't it. You have to be able to actually do it. Sometimes the greatest challenge to gaining information is the fact that you have such easy access because then why should I bother? One of the ideas, I, I like to use this example, you know, we have, I mentioned a few moments ago, there's a written law in the oral law, the Torah Shebechsav and the Torah Shebechsav. One of the great advantages of having an oral law, where we could discuss this at great length, like why did Hashem do that, is if it was only a written book, so I'm sure all of you have had this experience before, where as a bar, bar bat mitzvah, boy or girl, gets a gift, a book, a chumash or whatever it may be, and they get the gift as a bar mitzvah, and they say, oh, this is so nice. And what are they, where do they put that? <laughs> On the shelf. And then where does it stay? And then what's Bennett? Right? Very nice. You have a very lovely, important book on your shelf, but it's on your shelf. But if I had to teach that child orally, we bypass. I can't just give you a book and you say, thank you very much, and you put it on your shelf, and then you give it to your child, and he says, thank you very much, and you put it. And it can go down for centuries, and nobody ever opens it up. When you have an oral law, you have to learn it. There has to be a Rebbe, there has to be a Talmud, there has to be a teacher and a student, and it has to be engaging, it has to be real life, it has to be in front of us in the flesh. You can't do it any other way if it's oral. Rebbe Huda says, you're going to enter into this land. I'm going to put the entire Torah there, I'm going to put it for the entire world even, not just for you, everyone, but it's going to be covered in plaster. It's here for you. You want it? You just have to come and get it. You have to take the plaster off because you can walk right past it and you'll just see plaster. It's available to you, Rebbe Yehuda says. It's available, but it's only available to those who want to expend the effort to figure out how to get it. It's right there and it's in your language. And Rebbe Yehuda sees in that idea, which Rebbe Shimon says, let's see, no, first you put the plaster down, then you read it. Rebbe Yehuda says, no, write it and then plaster it. What are you thinking? This is what he's thinking, he explains. You need a level of understanding. You need a desire. You need to want to come get it. If you want it, it's there for you in any language you want. But you have to come and figure out how to get that plaster off and take what you want because it's not just enough to have access to information. You have to come 
and take it. And he sees Rabbi Yehuda in, this, in the way that he reads these psukim, in the order that was done, that's how it is. And this is our first stop. This is what Moshe tells the Jewish people as you're going to enter in. I'm going to take these stones. We're going to write it all down. Two different ways in plaster of the writing, the writing of the plastering. But this is your first lesson. You're going to celebrate. You're going to build a mizbech. You're going to bring offerings. You're going to eat. You're going to enjoy because you're creating your future. The connection between the Jewish people and their Torah in every language is going to be right there. But there's a, the, the lesson is you have to come. You have to come, you have to want it, you have to figure out what to do with it, even though, yeah, of course it's accessible. But now go learn it. Now go make it a part of who you are. Okay, that's a few of the lessons that the Torah has to teach us from Parshish Kisavo. Uh, looking forward, we'll continue uh, next week. Mirza Hashem.